0: Uh, today, we are beginning a series that's going to take us all the way up to Easter, and uh, it's called Fit to Fight. And the goal of the series is to get us in good shape. Uh, you might say, well, is he going to give us a physical challenge? No, I'm not giving you a physical challenge. Or is he going to give us an intellectual challenge? No, I'm not going to give you intellectual challenges. I'm going to give you spiritual challenge after spiritual challenge after spiritual challenge. And the reason why is this, statistics in our culture are alarming. Uh, they're alarming in terms of what is happening within our family structure and family unit. From what's happening in the lives of singles today, in their dating relationships, what's happening right now between uh, marriage and the institution thereof, what's happening in adolescents' lives, children's lives, and all the things that we seem to be watching Within the life and the culture of the church, and we are saying okay to so many of these things. And you would say to yourself, No, 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 I'm not saying okay to many of these things. And I would say this you're doing nothing is saying okay to everything. And more and more and more and more, what's happening is as parents, we are letting other people raise our kids. As parents, we are looking to professionals. And I'll tell you that that's not God's design. And the purpose of this series is not to frustrate you. It's not to condemn you. It's not to make you upset or mad. That's not the that's not the challenge at all. The challenge is is to wake you up, to call you to do a few things. One, maybe to repent. Maybe to say, God, I've missed the mark. I'm sorry for some, it's to it's to say, hey, Not only do you need to wake up, but you need to go a different direction. And the goal is not to hammer parents who are involved in certain activities. My goal is simply to help you understand what God's design is, why it's important, and what has to happen within the life and the culture of the church if things are going to change within the world and the culture in which we raise our kids in. And all of that happens through the family unit. Matter of fact, the family unit is God's design. Did y'all know that? Like the family unit is God's design. God created us male and female in his image. He created male not to live alone, to have a suitable helper companion in which we raise children together, in which we become the basis and the very foundation of society together. And without the basis of marriage and family and a unit that works, all of society begins to crumble and fall apart. Next week, we'll talk about what marriage is, and, and not just from a theological standpoint. But we're going to look at it from a standpoint in terms of research, and what people in, in from Harvard and Yale and Princeton are saying, and they're not even believers. They're taking all of that out, but they're just speaking of the infrastructure of the family and how important the unit of family is, and it has to begin with a mom and a dad. And it has to begin with them having a primary focus on not only responsibility, but what it takes to raise kids. And here's the deal. We don't need research. We've got the Bible. We've got God's word. And it is pointing to this one truth. The family is God's design. It is his plan to change and make the world not only go round, but it's how we raise great politicians. It's how we raise great army generals. It's how we raise great doctors and lawyers and pastors. And unless us as parents and as the church, we wake up, we have many things to look forward to, and they're not good. Matter of fact, George Barner, famous for his research uh, within Christian circles, says that 10% of self-proclaimed born-again Christians do not hold a biblical worldview. Meaning, if you were to ask them about dating relationships, they would look at you and say, well, of course dating's okay. Well, if you be- do you believe the Bible? Do you believe that sex outside of marriage is something we should hold to? And they would say, well, I, I know that that's what the Bible says, but nobody's doing it anymore. And they're born-again Christians. Born-again Christians are leading the nation along with everyone else in divorce rates. And again, it's not to condemn anyone, it's just to give you facts, Not only that, we're we're leading our kids astray. You know what's worse about the fact that right now, 10%, less than 10% of our culture, and even in this room, less than 10% hold a true biblical worldview? George Barna found that 51% of America pastors hold a biblical worldview. That leaves 49, almost one out of every two that does not. That's pretty alarming. It's alarming because... Among current trends and generations to come, statistics say that in 10 years from now, the church in America today will be half the size it is today. Teenagers are leaving their homes. Not only are they leaving their homes, but they're going to college only to abandon the church. 61% of teens today have been involved in church at some point and now say that it's unimportant that it has no point in their life. And not only that, parents are standing back with their hands open and saying, it's okay. My kids are bored. They don't really like church. They don't really care for student ministry. They don't like the student pastor. And we just say, well, I guess someone else will raise them. And we are letting other people raise our kids. David Kinnaman, he wrote Unchristian. He said that 85% of unchristian teens now that have been exposed to Christians would say that the Christian faith is at best hypocritical. And not only is it hypocritical, but 47% of Christian teens would agree with their counterparts. And so what you have is a group of teens that not only are they coming through our youth ministries, but they're leaving at college, they're abandoning their faith because 40 per, 47% of Christians say that, that the faith is hypocritical. While all the onlookers, are their friends, the ones that they drink with, they party with, they have sex with, would say, why do I need Christianity? It's not served your Christians well, why would I look to that? It's not serving me well either. National Study of Youth and Religion, a guy named Christian Smith who leads that organization, he said about this, he said this, we do not believe that a teenager's inability to articulate about religious matters reflects any general teen incapacity to think or speak well. He goes, we've met with lots of teens and they are able to articulate lots of things. Nothing about faith, nothing about marriage or life or the sanctity of life, nothing about religious matters, but they're able to articulate many things. And so we're not calling students or youth dumb. We're not saying they can't articulate things. They articulate very well. But many of the youth we interviewed were quite conversant when it came to many views on salient issues in their lives in which they had been educated and practiced about, discussing, Such as the dangers of drugs, substance abuse, sexually transmitted diseases. Rather, our impression as interviewers was that many teenagers could not articulate matters of faith because they had not been effectively educated in and provided opportunities to practice talking about their faith. So if you sit a teenager down, they can talk to you about drugs, alcohol, just saying no, They can tell you about the risk of sexually transmitted diseases. They can tell you how to put a condom on, but they cannot tell you about things like life and faith and Jesus Christ. Welcome to (laughs) Fit to Fight. (laughs) And you say, well, what are we to do about it? Where are we to go from here? Well, I'll tell you the very first thing you have to understand is that there is an enemy and the enemy is not Washington. The enemy is not politics. It's not education. It is not the fact that prayer has been taken out of public schools. It's not the fact that you can't pray before a football game. It's not, it's not any of those things. And time and time and time again, coffee shops, we drink our coffee and we say, I can't believe that God has been taken out of our schools. The problem is, is that God has been taken out of our homes. Because if we are teaching and saying that indeed the institution in which God works and that the family function at its best, it's God's design. And that's where things work. That's where you put oil and grease on the wheels and you make them go round. The, the problems that we have are not the politicians in Washington. It's not the fact that we can't get change at a government level. We're not going to get change at government level until we get change at a personal level. And then from there at the level of our home. And you may go, well, how? Well, here's the deal. The enemy is not a face. If you're putting a face with the enemy, if you're blaming everything on something else, whether it be Hollywood or politics or culture, then I think we're missing it. Because Ephesians 6, verse 10 And following says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mind. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to take a stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against what? The powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Parents, grandparents, singles. Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy your home he's doing an effective job in our culture. He's doing an effective job in our schools. He's doing an effective job in our homes. And if he can get us to looking and thinking about many other areas in which we could place blame, then guess what? It takes the blame off of us as parents. But the bottom line is we have an enemy who is real, and oftentimes we don't see him and we forget to think about him. But he is the adversary. He is the accuser, the diablos. He is Satan, and he decides to what attack the home at its most pivotal location. And he knows that if he can bring a wedge between your marriage, men, if he can cause your eyes to look one other way, ladies, if he can get it to come out of your mouth that that you would say that my husband is absent and he's a slob and he's he's rejecting his responsibilities, then he's attacking the very foundation of the culture, and the home. Parents, if he can get you to focus on something that really in in all reality will not last, and he can get you to put more time and effort into that with your children than he will to put it into things of faith, then guess what? He's winning. And the question is not, well, do I have to cut out everything? But the Bible, no, the answer is not that. The answer is this. The Bible has to be a foundational part of your life. And Character has to be taught, but more than taught, it has to be caught. It has to be modeled from you as parents. It has to be modeled from you as grandparents. And I know as, as over the last several years, I've had many, many, many grandparents say to me, I wish I would have had this 20 years ago. And here's the deal. You don't. You didn't. But the last time I checked, the patriarch of our family is Mark Bachtel. And as his faith goes, so goes his sons. And as his faith goes, so goes his grandsons. And so if you would please understand that while your children are no longer under the influence of your house, you still have great influence. God has given you a voice and that needs to be heard. And it is not just heard, but it's practiced and it's modeled. The way that you run your business, the way that you treat people, the way you handle your finances, the way that you practice life and matters of faith are important. And it has to begin to change now. Why? Because the enemy is real. And what's interesting is Joshua, after he took over the command from Moses... He saw after the sojourning of the wilderness and overshadowing of all that was happening, God began to bring them through amazing journey of faith. And not only an amazing journey of faith, but they would overtake places like Ai and Jericho. And and they would overcome Amalekites and Midianites and all of these different people and God would just begin to use them for amazing things. But even after they had seen God work, and even after they had possessed the promised land, even if they had lived there and abided there, Joshua knew that they had quickly mingled with several people that were wrong. That even in the life of this great country, Israel, that God had forechosen, that he, he knew and he had made, he knew that even after they'd seen all these miraculous things, I mean, literally being freed from 400 years of bondage, being set free only to go and possess a promised land after a wilderness journey. He says, our, our hearts were prone to wonder and they got mixed up in culture. They got mixed up in lies and deceit and they began to serve other gods. And Joshua one day, he challenged them and he said, hey, we're gonna have to take it to our, our leaders and we're gonna have to change there." No. He said, if we want change, it's going to have to begin at the level of our house. And he gathered men around. And this is what he said in Joshua 24. You're used to 15, just one little fragment of it. But I want you to to read 14 and 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. His plea is just as my plea is today. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord with sincerity and faithfulness. Make this a matter of life. Make this a matter of death. May it be important to you. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. He said you have to choose which fathers you're going to live by. The fathers that possessed the land of the Chaldeans and Mesopotamia, or you're going to possess the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, Yahweh, the one true God. He said, you have to decide. But he says, you are beginning to divert your eyes and your attention elsewhere. And he says, you need to serve the Lord. Look at verse 15. This is the challenge. I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I'm going to challenge you with it. Okay. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose to stay whom you're going to serve. So I would just say to you that if it's not God that you're going to serve, then you need to invest 100% in serving your own God. Hold on. let me. Do you understand what I'm saying? If it's not God indeed that you're going to serve, then you need to go full force 100% in serving the gods that you've made for yourselves. And that was his challenge. His challenge to the nation of Israel is if it's not God you're going to serve, then serve your gods. Little G. And get after it. Whether the gods your father served in, in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in which we now dwell. He goes, if it's the gods of the, the people in Mesopotamia before Abraham, then that's fine. But if it's the culture in which we live in now, if it's the Amorites, if you want their women, if you want their orgies, and if you want their, their fame, their fortune, you want their customs and their lifestyle, you want to eat their foods, then you do it. And then he says, but it's for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. But it's for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. And the question is, is, does that make you nervous? Or does that excite you? Or does it drive you to fear and anguish? Because I don't know about you, but the greatest times in my family and in the life of my kids is when we totally abandon all things in terms of culture and, and practical things that we think are successful or bring success in our own eyes, and we just trust the Lord. And I'll tell you, I don't do that as often as I should. And as a pastor, I'm here to confess to you that, that this fit to fight may not be as much for you as it is for me. Because I know that over the last five years, I've stood time and time and time again. I've, at, I've offered practical challenges many of which I've taken up for a week or two and then abandoned. Why? Because my eyes shift from matters of faith and practice to what? The world and getting caught up in things. And, and I'm having so many convictions as I read multiple things in terms of preparing for this series. But the, the biggest one is this in Joshua where he says, hey, choose whom you're going to serve. The gods of your forefathers, the gods of the Amorites or for me. I'm going to choose to serve the Lord. There's a passage in Ephesians chapter five. We've kind of camped there. Last week, Brian read a little bit. It goes along greatly with the region series that we just finished. But I want you to just see six verses with me, starting in verse 15 and, and going all the way through 21. I want you to see what Paul is calling this church in Ephesus to and, and something that I want to call us to. And in verse 15, it simply says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Look carefully at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Again, more is what caught than taught. We can say anything that we want, and and we've talked about that before here at Stone Point. Don't do as I what? Do, do as I say. And those things don't work. We have now a culture of teens, tweens. And children, who they want answers. They want you to be able, as 1 Peter uh, 3.15 says, be prepared to give an answer to the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. They want answers. They don't want you and your baloney anymore. They don't want the words, well, I was just raised this way, and this is what we believe, and if you don't like it, you leave. No, they want parents who will not only be able to speak of important spiritual issues— but they want you to live it out as well. They wanna be able to look to someone who believes that the matters of life and faith are actually practical and real. And the challenge within our homes and our culture, even within the walls of our, our church, Stone Point Church, is we have many a people who are a mile wide and an inch deep, and you can't speak to any real solidarity on life issues. Faith issues, marriage issues. Why? Because you were never taught. See, we've actually been abandoning the the structure of the home. We've been living not as wise, but as unwise people for far too long. We remember the days of Leave it to Beaver, but they are no more. We remember the days of the Brady Bunch, but they are no more. We live in the days of modern family where two dads live together, and where our children wonder, why am I different? What is this I'm feeling? And we have no answers for them. And we truly, as verse 15 says, we live as unwise. But Paul commissions, and he says, but you, you live as wise. What does that mean? Wise. It means you Make sure that you do not continually trip on the same folly. Proverbs twenty six eleven: As a dog, what? Returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. I am the chief vomit lapper in this room. I mean, I can't wait for this to spread for everyone in Edgewood, and, and not only that, but across the world wide web, Right? If you're at a volunteer banquet, you got little snippets of things they took. I mean, they're going to love this one. I am the chief vomit lapper. What does it mean? It means that I live as unwise. I set out a plan to live as wise, but I find myself time and time and time again, knowing what I ought to do and not doing it. Knowing what I ought not to do and what? Find myself doing it. Romans 7. It sounds very familiar to the regeneration series. Why? Because once we're regenerated, we have but one job to do, and that's to be ministers of reconciliation. And I think we oftentimes think, as Christians, don't we, that our job is to go out and win souls. Man, we ought to really make a point at work this week. Man, that atheist, man, we ought to continue to not only pray for them, but we ought to discuss, and, man, we ought to really hammer it out with them. And here's the deal. Our kids are wasting away because our obligations are in the wrong place. Our calendars are full, our phone keeps ringing and we keep leading our kids off into an abyss and we live as fools. But he says, in verse 16, but you, we, we are to make the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil make the best use of the time because the days are evil. And what he uses there is a word that actually means redeem the time. And there's two words of the Greek for time. There's time like days and minutes and hours. And all of us in here have what? Days, minutes, and hours. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not just saying, hey, make an appointed time and a few hours. What he's saying is is this, your time is limited. Meaning, that your life is like a vapor, that it comes and it goes. That as Psalm 139 says, that before even one day came to be, your days were numbered. He says, redeem the time. That as long as you have life and as long as you have breath, you ought to make the most of every opportunity, redeem it. Why? Because the days are evil. Understand the point? In a sense, what he's saying is this, is if you don't teach your children, someone else will. And you better make the most of your time. You better make sure that you hit on all cylinders because there is going to be a day in which you look up as all older people tell me now, Brandon, you better enjoy these moments because they'll be gone in just a hurry. And I'm looking up and literally in three weeks from now, our oldest child will be six years old. And he literally has just run with the course of our church. And when I say run with the course of our church, meaning we decided to plant this church and have three kids all at the same time. Marvelous idea. (laughs) But as I watch our church grow and I see people have incredible life change, what's interesting is, is that I've got to watch my family do the same thing. I've got to make sure that I'm redeeming the time. And if you redeem the time, then you have to you have to listen to the challenge of the next couple of verses because the next couple of verses are really important to you and I redeeming the time. Because I don't know if you realize it or not, but we oftentimes think that redeeming the time is making sure that our kids got up for the service this morning and got to church. We think redeeming the time is make sure that we drop them off at student ministry. And I don't think we're understanding the redeeming the time means redeeming the time is knowing that there is more that is caught than is what taught that the things that we do every day the bible we read or for many of us in here we don't read is something our kids see so he says therefore don't be foolish but understand what the will of the lord is that's opposite of verse 15 verse 15 says live as wise not as unwise right verse 17 says don't be foolish you understand the point understand what the, the Lord's will is. Isn't that the one question that we oftentimes under, ask ourselves more and more and more of is what is, the, what is the will of the Lord? Like, God, what do you want me to do here? Can I tell you, mom, dad, can I tell you the greatest job you have and the will that God has for you? Are you ready for it? Single grandparent, you have to wonder no longer. You can pay me. I'll even write a book for you that you can read and put on your shelves if you'd like. It'll be one page. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. Pretty simple, but yet so complex, right? And then get this. And instruct your children to do likewise. Deuteronomy 6. Impress upon them when they sit and when they rise. When they come, when they go. May every word from your lip meditate the praises of what God is doing in your life. And in the moment, we go, yes, yes, yes. But just in a couple of hours, we'll be going, oh, man. Oh, man, what's happened? Because we are missing the moments. Verse 18, and I know it's kind, of, it's kind of weird. It's kind of obscure there. It must've been a, a struggle back in their culture. Verse 18, uh, it's probably something that we don't deal with much in America. But I know in the heart of, of Ephesus and Rome and all those places it was a struggle. So he says, and don't get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be filled with spirit. So what he says is simply this, alcohol is a depressant, it loosens. It allows you to be freed up. And essentially, here's what alcohol can do. It can take the place of God. And what did what did Joshua say? Choose whatever God you want. And see, you think God is this little shrine, like this little idol that sits on your countertop. No, no, God is anything that you meditate on day and night, that when you get up, you crave. God is something that you can't go a day without. And I know you would say, I'm not an alcoholic. I just drink a beer every night with my steak. Well, let me ask you a question. Can you break your period? Just, Just break your routine for one week. Don't drink a beer for one week. And you go, oh, now he's on beer. No, 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 I'm not on beer. I'm for anything here that dissipates the mind. Anything that dissipates the mind. Anything that takes the place of God, and here's the question, how do I know, should I drink alcohol? Should I eat that piece of cake that I'm indulging on? Can I just give you a quick little run through just for you, and not only for you, but your kids' sake? Because right now, America is actually, um, we're seeing over 100,000 deaths a year just to alcohol diseases. Over 6 million, their lives are being lost because of alcohol-related fatalities, etc. So alcohol is a problem in our culture, and you go, well, why are you hopping on this? Well, the text just puts it on a a, a T for me, okay? And when it's on a T, guess what? I'm going to smack it. (laughs) So should I have it? Here's the three questions. It's not the question, should I not have it? It's not whether or not it's permissible. The question is, is it beneficial? Number one, is it taking the place of God? Is there something that substance, regardless of what it is, take what your your pick is, okay? Mine's food. I struggle with food big time, okay? So much so that I gained five pounds this week, okay? There you go. There's my confession. Some of you, you struggle with tobacco. For some of you, it's weed. For some of you, it's alcohol. For some of you, it's take your pick, okay? Gambling, sexual tendencies, lust, or whatever, okay? The question is Is this, does it take the place of God, okay? So does it meet a need that God should meet, understand? And so if you come home and you binge on a piece of cake because you're stressed, then it's a sin. Why, because I had a piece of cake? No, because instead of our stress being, what, released through a piece of cake or a beer, we should have turned to the God who can relieve all stress. Understand? Agree? Well, that's a good point. Good point. I thought so too. Okay. (laughs) Secondly, 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 okay, is this. Who am I taking part of this with? Is there someone else around me that I'm going to cause to stumble? Yes? Yeah? And so what is my motivation? If my motivation is to, to get a feel from something else besides God, then it's wrong. I shouldn't do it. If, if, if it's the motivation of, of I'm going to take this and I'm not really concerned about who's around, the question is you have to ask is who am I going to lead off a cliff? And here's the deal. There are some people in this room right now that they have what you call an addictive personality. And it doesn't matter what it is. But the moment that you open it for them, <laughs> You lead them off the abyss. And the danger is not the person that you know, the person that you don't know is the greatest danger. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not the person you know, it's the person that you don't know the greatest danger. And so, if you're sitting out with some friends, I'm not talking about just your friends, I'm talking about anyone else. Why? Because as believers, we have to think about those things. We don't ever want to become a stumbling block to other people. So, so here's the deal. Don't get drunk on wine, for that's debauchery. It's a depressant. Food can be a depressant. You, you get the point, right? The third reason that you shouldn't take of it is this, is because instead of you being filled with those things, God has something better. And he says, would you be filled with my spirit? And, and I don't know about you, but I belong to be filled with God's spirit. I want to make decisions, not with a cloudy mind, not with depressant induced mind. I want to be clear, alert, and I want to be clicking on all cylinders. Why? For my wife, for my kids, for my family. I want to be fit. I want to be spiritually fit. Why? Because there's a real fight that's taking place at hand. And here's the deal. You and I cannot do this alone and you will not win in this battle without being filled with the Spirit. If God is not along this journey with you, you will fail time and time again, and you'll find yourself struggling to get back up and dust yourself off. Not because you're not a good parent, not because you're not a good guy or a good gal, but the bottom line is you're operating under the merit of your own strength, and there's a day and time in which your own strength and your own merit will give out and will fail. But there is one person and his name is Jesus Christ. And he says, I am going away that I may send a more suitable help for you. And he never grows weary. He never grows tired and he never ever wears out. And he says, cast your cares upon me hey, when you're weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Meaning, but listen, you don't have to run the race with everyone else if you allow me to run the race for you. And his name is Yahweh, the one true God. Yes, And he says, and then address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Like this week, this is my challenge. I'm going to just go around the the, the room this week and everybody I address, I'm just going to be singing to them. Lord, I lift your name on high. Jennifer, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm just going to just all week, I'm just going to address them with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Like You understand what I'm saying? Like, I mean, who cannot be encouraged by that, right? Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You know what I'm saying? What does that mean? It means this. We ought to be alive in Christ and we ought to desire to praise him in all that we do, regardless of where we are. And see, I think oftentimes we think where, where we best fit into this picture and where can we best be involved in the will of God. And we think the will of God is a particular job, or we think that it's a particular vocation or a particular direction for our family. And here's the, here's the will of God. The will of God is that we would not be cloudy in our mind, that we would allow him to fill us, and that it would so radiate from our lives that it would penetrate other lives. Why? Because we go about making a radical difference, and the whole time we're singing and shouting to victory. Why? Because he's made that big of a difference. Now, I don't know. I mean, y'all y'all can take that as a challenge if you'd like. If you want to just change your workplace this week, get after it. Address one another. But here's the question. Have you ever thought about family worship? I mean, what's it look like? At our house, I know it's crazy, but we we have to clean a lot in our house because we've got, you know, kids. And the moment you clean one room, you, you have to go right back to it. And so here's the best thing for us to kind of keep us sane, okay? Two things. Number one, we have to pray before cleaning, Okay. That's the only way that all lives are, are actually still alive afterwards, okay? So we have to pray, and th- this is no lie, that we have to pray before cleaning. And number two, we have to turn on some music that can keep us focused. And the whole time that we work, we sing. And it doesn't matter where we are, or what, we can't clean in the back to house without singing. And here's why. Because so quickly, we'll lose sight, understand? And, and the goal is not. And so what do we do? Verse 20 says, we give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, meaning we give thanks. Do you understand that you cannot be a complaining heart and continue to give thanks? And so like if you and I struggle with just a natural inclination to complain, and many of us in this room do. We're just natural complainers. There's some that you just radiate and overflow joy, and every single place you go, people are like, man, I want some of what they got. And then there's others. We're just Debbie Downers, half glass empty all the time, negative complaining. Listen to me, if that's you, you are not filled with the Spirit, and you are not thankful from God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. So know that. Okay, that's just an extra tidbit, not mad at anybody, just letting you know, if you send me an email tomorrow, that's the verse I'm sending back. (laughs) And we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here it is, all of these things bring us to this one verse and which leads to the next 21 verses. So verse 21 leads to the next 21 verses and it talks about relationships, relationships between husband and wife, relationship between parents and children, relationships between slave and and, and, and servant, master-servant relationships. And so all of these things come. And here's what I want you to understand. We don't submit to one another because social kindness says we should. That's not, like if that's the motivation for you submitting to someone is because you're socially kind, then it's the wrong reason. You don't even do it because of the law of God. Like, I want to be legalistic and I want to make sure that I honor God in every way, so I'm going to be kind to me. You do it because you have great reverence for Christ, the very one who laid his life down for his friends. You say, just as Paul said about Jesus, he said, what did he say? Philippians, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, right? he Became obedient, even to death, death on the cross, so that what? We would see his servant nature. We serve one another because we take on, as Paul said in that same passage, the attitude of Christ. A servant who willingly lays down his life. And so can I just give you three quick challenges as we wrap up? Can I give you three quick challenges? Some of you are like, I don't know that I want a challenge. No, no, let me give you three quick challenges. Number one, my challenge over the next several weeks together, seven I believe total, up until Easter, is that we would get fit to fight. That you would get fit to fight. So what does that mean? It means that I'm going to evaluate my house, that I'm going to make sure that what I am not only saying but what I am doing is being shown. That I am am not going to, what, major on minors, I'm not going to lead our family off into the abyss that we've been leading ourselves into. And so we're not going to encourage, ask, or even, what, mandate our children to be something that we are not ourselves. And so we're saying that if we believe that the infrastructure of our economy of our entire culture, is indeed God's one true design, and it starts in the family, then you are going to say, I'm going to get my family ready, and we're going to get fit. And I get it. You go, man, it seems so lame to go home after this message. It's going to be so ridiculous as a dad, because now I have to confess to my wife, and I have to confess to my kids man, I've been missing it all this time, and now we're going to get some things in place. So, so, lay down your foolish pride. Don't live as unwise, but as wise and say, you know what? As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And yes, I'm sorry. As you speak candidly to your wife, may even shed a tear because you ought to be broken over the fact that men, we've led our families into some pretty pretty pitiful places. but you say no more, no more, no more, no more. And then number two, you say, I'm going to do one thing. I'm going to do one thing this week to strengthen my family. One thing, one, not a dozen, not three dozen. Don't send me a list of all the ways you're going to one-up me this week, okay? Just do one thing. Say, I'm going to win in one area this week. And so here's a few challenges, here's a few things. One way, eat at least three meals together this week. at least three meals together this week. Some of you are like, we eat meals together all the time. Okay, fine, great. Study your Bible together this week. Will we do that too? Okay, well, pray with your wife because statistics show from our 4C survey about a year and a half ago that almost 80% of the people and couples in this room do not pray with their spouse more than one time a week. So men, what a great place to start. Pray with your wife this week at least three times. Not five, not seven, three times. Men, Plan a date with your wife. It's been a long time, right? It's been a long time. Put it on your calendar. Begin to court her again. Open her door. Pull out her chair. Take her to somewhere besides Don's Dairy Barn. Spend some money. If you need some, I'm sure we have some. At Stone Point Church, we could loan you. But do not, do not cheap out on this. Love your wife, why? Because she's the most suitable helper that God gave you. Cherish her, love her, lead her. Lead her, love her. Lead your family in worship. Everybody's gonna clean this afternoon, right? Having a few people over for the Super Bowl, gotta get our house. Hey, turn on some music, remind yourself. Here's a practical one. Write three commercials down that you see within the midst of all of the confusion tonight and discuss them this week with your children. Talk about things in culture and faith. Don't differentiate the two. Point everything to Christ. Help them see. And then here's the deal. Get fit to fight for your family. Do one thing to strengthen your family. Do one thing to strengthen one other family. Understand? Do one thing to strengthen one other family. Write a note of encouragement. Bless someone by keeping their kids so they can go on a date. Here's a good one. Right now, Pastor Brian is serving in our kids' ministry, and he'll be there all three services. So we'll serve in our kids' ministry, and we'll bless the family by keeping their kids so guess what, mom and dad can go and listen. Do I need to reemphasize that one? I'm not trying to guilt you into something. I want you to realize this is if you're a mom and dad, there is absolutely no reason that you should not be on rotation in our kids' ministry. If you have kids that are K through fifth grade or infants through fifth grade, there's no reason that you should not serve at least once or twice a month in our kids' ministry, period. Why? Because if you believe that it starts at home and the family unit is the one that's going to succeed and win out, then guess what? Quit dumping them with other people. And that's exactly what we're doing. Slap a tag on them. Hope they do a good job and you don't even know. Get in there. Teach. Live. Love. Serve alongside of them. Quit letting someone else lead your family. Do one thing to strengthen another. And so volunteer on your campus. Edgewood, you too. Invest in one family. Listen, Do for one family what you wish you could do for everyone. Understand? Don't spread your resources thin. Don't try to minister to 12 families. Get one and minister to them. Make a difference for them. And as you lead your family, lead one other. Understand? Let me leave you with this challenge. I have three kids. Every one of them is different. Every one of them. Personalities are different. Temperaments are different. The way they respond to punishment is different. Their laugh is different. Their hugs are different. Their kisses are different. Every one of them, God entrusted to my care, has a blank canvas. And over the last several years, I've allowed people to write on their canvas I've allowed people to write the story of their life. I've invested and made many marks on their paper. Many of you have made marks on their paper. But the question that I have is this. As a parent, are you pleased with everyone who's marked on your kid's life? Are you you pleased with everything that you've allowed them to be a part of? Are you pleased with where they're going? Are you pleased with where they've been? Are you okay at this point that your son now 34 is not involved in the church and he's not raising his kids there either? Are you pleased that now it's no longer a blank canvas that that generations have spoken in their lives, men and women have hurt them, men and women have led them astray and all while we as parents have looked on. And while I'm early on into the canvas, I'll confess to you, There are many people that marked on my canvas that my parents never knew about. And I say that with my parents sitting in the room. One of them, by God's grace, can't hear it. (laughs) But I'll tell you, the family unit's important. And we had better figure out who's marking on our kid's canvas. We'd better figure out the coaches that we're letting our kids play for. We'd better figure out where they're leading our kids and what they're teaching them. And we'd better figure out whether or not the culture that we're leading them to, the things that we're leading them towards, if they have an eternal value that will last forever, or if we're simply leading them into a legacy that will not last. And I'll, say, I'll tell you, and I think I could camp out here for many different reasons, but I'm not going to. I want you to understand that as a parent, we have to begin to think that way, methodically and strategically, prayerfully, knowing that while I have many a dreams for my kid, playing at the University of Texas, being a star quarterback, Driveling down the court, even right now, and scorn, I mean, dunking on a little kindergarten. I mean, I would love that, right? The thing that God's teaching me this in the midst of my own life is that with statistics and alarming results, it does no good for my kid to be a star quarterback or a football player, or even to play sports at all. Because Jesus didn't go to Little League nor did George Washington or Samuel Adams or some of the the nation's greats. That's not where they learned character. It's not where they were impacted forever. You know know where it was? It was in the home. And so may, may we understand that our home's important and may we understand that wherever it is that we lead them, that they're a blank canvas and there's only one person responsible for that canvas at the end of their days and that is mom and dad, that is the family unit. And so may we write well. For some, we want to get a big old eraser, right? But here's the deal: get this. I know the greatest one. I know the most forgiving and gracious God, and I know the one who can take the broken and He can bind it and heal it. I know that for parents, that you would say, "Man, we missed the mark." Listen to me. You are you're still the patriarch 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 of the family. Don't forget your sphere of influence. Don't forget God's grace and his mercy. And here's the deal. You might have missed it for years, but it's not too late. Why? Because we still have a voice. Get fit. Get ready to fight. And go and win your family for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Free your calendar, some of the nuances that you have on it, and listen to me, win your family. Because at the end of the day... It doesn't matter where you're investing. You may have the greatest ministry in the world. You may have the greatest job in the world. You may have one of the greatest pay in the world. You may be the person that I write on to the electoral ballot because I don't like the rest of the candidates. But the bottom line is this. You may win the presidency and not win your family. And what a tragedy. I'll shut up now. Get fit to fight. And, and let's let's do some work okay amen let me pray for us amen Heavenly father I, I come this morning with a heavy heart knowing that there are many of us in this room many of us on both campuses that wish we could do some things differently father there's many of us that we look at our kids' lives and we know that it is indeed a blank canvas and but we've been riding on it for years we've been We've been letting other people ride on it. We've been letting other people have a voice in their lives. And and we look up and we see now that Hollywood's made their mark. Movies have made their mark. Teachers and coaches have made their mark. The church has made its mark. The question is, is what markings do we like the most? Which one do we think leads our family in the right direction? Which ones are we going to embrace and which ones do we wish to erase? Father, I pray... Whatever we decide, whatever gods it is that we decide to to, to live by, the gods of this culture, the gods that we've made for ourselves, or the one true God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God that sent his son Jesus to die on a sinner's cross, to live in a place where sinners dwelt, but became obedient to death, even death on the cross, and he became sin on my behalf that I may become the righteousness of God. I pray, I pray, I pray that that's the God that we'll serve. I pray that's the God will love. I pray that's the God that will allow to lead us. And so God, we we give you our lives as a declaration. And Lord, we, we lift our hands and we lift our hearts to you. And we say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And so, God, may that be our decree, may it be our life verse, may it be the very thing that we write on our mirrors and our home as we brush our teeth. And as men and as women, I pray that we would fight for that above all else. We love you, we need you, because the enemy is real. He's lurking, he's killing families, even as we speak. But I pray you would breathe new life into him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.